Uh, well, good morning, family. Um, my name is Gus. I'm a member here at Fellowship Nashville. Uh, and I want to welcome you worshiping with us here in person this morning and those of you uh, worshiping online. Uh, we are in our identity series. And two weeks ago, Mark began by showing us what it means to be gospel-centered. This, this series we've been going on, it's about who we are as a church. It's about the markers, the DNA that define us, that help motivate us to live on mission as a body of believers. And it's this expression of Fellowship Nashville. And we've been reviewing our tagline each week, which states that we are a gospel-centered church in the city, for the city, and seeking a city above. And I really like this. It's up there, but you can actually see the really cool Nashville skyline there, even the WeWork building and the Batman building in the background. So I don't know if Colin did that, if Molly did that. I don't know who drew it, but man, kudos to, to them, um, whoever did that. Like, it's incredible artwork. I'm definitely not that talented. It would look really bad. Um, you don't want to see me draw. Um, but more importantly, the tagline, our vision, is shaped by 12 values that, that our church, that our leaders have chosen uh, to represent who we are and what we're about. I appreciate Mark how the past two weeks he's reminded us those four phrases, what they help show us. Gospel-centered points to our priority. Being in the city helps identify our place. Being for the city exemplifies our posture of humility. And seeking a city above, which Levi will, will unpack for us next week, gives em emphasis to our ultimate purpose. How this is not just a here and now thing, this is an eternal thing. And we've seen specifically that gospel-centered reminds us that we trust the gospel to bring people to faith in Jesus, and we trust the gospel to grow people in faith in Jesus. And last week, Mark showed us that in the city highlights the necessity for our faithful presence in our oikos, not our Greek yogurt, our spheres of influence. But this week, we come to For the City. And like we've done the last two weeks, I'd love for us to read together as a church the three values that help... Uh, that we've, we've put under that heading of being for the city. These, these values, they're deeply woven into the life of believers. And we as a church believe they're not meant to simply be lived out individually, but corporately as well. So these will be up on the screen, but let's read these together. The first value is this, generosity matters. We gladly serve and sacrifice to help the neighborhoods and help our city flourish. Sorry, you guys read it better than I did. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 reminds us, Paul's writing to Timothy and he's, he's encouraging him. He knows he's, he's about to, to basically, he's going to die soon, but he's encouraging him to continue on and to press on. But he reminds Timothy and he reminds us not to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly blesses and provides all that we need. As followers of Jesus, we are to be ready to do good. We are to be rich in good works and generous and ready to share our time, our talents, and our treasure with anyone in need, especially those around us. The second value is this, justice matters. Let's read this together. We seek to give voice to those who suffer from injustice, leveraging our influence and resources to help those who lack the power or platform. In a world that so often uses the word justice with only negative connotations, disciples of Jesus seek justice for fellow image bearers in a positive way so that they can love, serve, and seek justice for others as well. And then our third value under this for the city, ownership matters. Let's read this together. We desire to be contributors, not consumers, who generously choose Jesus' mission over our comfort. Jesus desires committed contributors, not passive participants, to join him on mission. How that plays itself out in our lives will look very different based off of a variety of things. 
but we are either hearers and doers of the word or we're disobedient in our failure to hear, do, or both. And as we dive in this morning, what I want us to see are three big ideas. I want us to see, number one, why our cities matter, two, wrong ways that we sometimes view the city, and then three, God's blueprint for cities. And as we get started this morning, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, Don't worry, we're not hitting verse 11. We'll be starting in verse 4. Let's read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so inadequate to open your word and proclaim it. I need your help. I need the spirit to speak through me. My prayer is that you would just be magnified and made much of today. That we would just get a glimpse and a taste of what you are working and praying for for us, what you have planned for us to work and do in Nashville, Tennessee and beyond. My prayer is that we would be faithful, committed contributors to your mission, to your kingdom. We love you. We thank you for Jesus and his example on our behalf, for your glory, and for our good. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Now, we need to get a little background of what's going on here in Jeremiah 29. So the text for this morning that we're looking at, it's 597 BC. The Babylonians have conquered Israel, and they want the Israelites to move. They want them to move into their city. They want them to assimilate to the Babylonian culture and they want them to lose their cultural and more importantly, their spiritual identity. The very thing that makes them distinct. The very thing that gives them something unique to offer. Now, God gives Jeremiah a message to deliver to the leaders about what's to come. And and I'll read this. It's not going to be on the screen, but Jeremiah 27 is where God first really warns uh, Jeremiah about what's to come. He tells Jeremiah to let them know they're about to go into captivity by using some very specific imagery, straps and yoke bars, and put them around the neck. He warns them that this is going to last for multiple generations, and ultimately, this is all because of his plan, not Nebuchadnezzar's. Listen to what he says. Thus said the Lord to me, this is verse 2 of chapter 27, make yourself yoke straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. They're all trying to get together to kind of rebel against this. They don't want to go into captivity, which, you know, I get that. But God tells them it's not going to matter. Give them this charge for their masters, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I, God, who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his grandson and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. I want to note 
a couple of things here. Number one, we've already said this, they're going into captivity, it's going to happen. And God tells them it's going to be even temporarily a long time. But even in God's discipline, he's discipling his people. Even in his discipline, he is asking them to trust him and to follow him where he leads them. There's a message there for the church this morning. Jackie Hoperi says it this way, if God is holy, he can't sin. And if he can't sin, he can't sin against you. And if he can't sin against you, doesn't that make him the most trustworthy person there is? Even in the difficult times, even in the pain, just like we sang this morning, we see the goodness of God. Now you can imagine the leaders that Jeremiah is going to be speaking to would have loved to hear something different from Jeremiah. It's negative, it's harsh, it's painful. But Jeremiah wasn't the only prophet who shows up. Another prophet came along in chapter 28. His name was Hananiah. And dude was made for our day. He was made for social media. Let me, let me read what Hananiah said. He said he heard a message from the Lord about the same thing that was coming. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconia, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. As I said, if ever there was someone who was way ahead of his time, made for, made for Twitter and social media, it was Hananiah. Don't like something you read? Just keep looking because someone is bound to have a take that you'd prefer. Am I right? He essentially says God told him to tell the people they wouldn't be in captivity very long at all. Two years tops. And he also tells them that God will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Essentially the exact opposite message from Jeremiah, who he told, hey, put the, put the straps and the yoke bars on your neck. Hananiah and then other false prophets, uh, God tells us in Jeremiah 29, are essentially telling God's people, the Israelites, not to move into the city and keep their spiritual identity. He's basically telling them, reject that. Well, I have some news for you because we're not reading from the book of Hananiah this morning. I believe we can safely deduce which prophet was actually vindicated. And I believe that what God was telling the Israelites is what he's telling us today and that he wants us to engage the city, not reject it. But he also wants us to keep our spiritual identity, our distinctiveness, what makes us who we are. So this morning we have three big points. Number one, why cities matter. Number two, three wrong ways that we look at cities, and then we'll look at God's blueprint for cities. But first, let's take a look at why cities matter. Now, I won't spend a ton of time here, but I do think it's helpful for us to think about why cities are important. After all, we live in a big city. We live in Nashville, That's right. I think Tim Keller is quite helpful here for us. If you uh, have listened to, read through his Gospel and Life series, he shows us that historically, large urban cities have been places of refuge and safety. Large cities tended to have walls and protection historically, where people could go and seek shelter and protection from attackers, from their enemies, from the wild. They could go in to this place that was very densely populated, and even though our culture doesn't want us to, they could just kind of hide in the crowd and not stand out from it. Cities also historically have been places of justice, 
Large cities were places where laws were created and ultimately passed down to more rural areas, not that different from what we think of today. Cities were also places of culture development. Business was done in cities in the marketplace. Arts, culture, entertainment, all of that started in big cities. Education was happening primarily in larger cities. You want to be uh, a rabbi, you're going to go into the city and learn from one. And lastly, large cities have, have historically been places where spiritual seeking and finding begins. Religion historically tended to be more prominent in larger urban cities. We, we don't tend to think of that this way today. We think of the city as where religion goes to die and the, the rural suburbs, that's where religion goes to thrive. But it hasn't always been that way. Keller also pointed out in the series that as of a few years ago, a couple years ago actually, there was an average, it's astounding to me, of 5 million people that were moving from rural areas into urban areas and cities globally each month. Let me say that again. 5 million people moving from rural areas into urban areas globally each month. That's like five Nashvilles popping up around the world every four and a half to five weeks, hopefully teleporting some of the party buses and pedal taverns with them. I kid, kind of. But if you think about it, that's a lot of people that are moving into cities, and it presents a very unique opportunity for the church. How do we live out the Great Commission and go when the nations are coming to us? Think about that. If we view the city rightly, we see this as a gospel opportunity to go and engage and be on mission. But my fear, and I think many fear in the church, that we don't always see things that way. So let's talk about how we can tend to view the city wrongly. And I think, again, Keller is very helpful here. I'm also borrowing um, very heavily from Stephen Castello, Buster Leeds. They are two of my former pastors. They were groomsmen in our wedding. Um, two guys who I just... They ooze just gospel and ooze Jesus, and I'm just so thankful for them. They both actually preached on this text and were very helpful as I was studying and preparing, um, thinking about this, because I think it's easy for us to view the city wrongly. So how do we view the city wrongly? Well, there's three ways, and the first way is this. We tend to reject the city. This view treats the city with an us-versus-them mentality. Us, the good people of the church, and them, the bad people that live out there. Now, I can look back on my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, and I can see the history of many prominent churches that used to be located in the city, only later to relocate to the suburbs and either rebrand or rename. Now, they did so in the name of shifting demographics, both those moving into their neighborhoods and those moving out of them. They sold their buildings and they promptly moved out. There's even an example of one church in Birmingham that was pretty prominent downtown and in the 90s, it moved out into one of the suburbs, and it actually petitioned the city government to change one of the street names that it was, it was on to the name of the church that it had been for almost 100 years, just so they could keep the name. This view of the city creates churches that have a fortress or a bunker mentality, creating what we've heard of as holy huddles that are isolated from the neighborhoods and neighbors that they were only recently more than eager to lock arms with. And this view tends to refuse to acknowledge the good things of the city. Think about the city you live in. There's so much culture. There's refuge and there's safety that Nashville can provide to, to immigrants and refugees. 
in the spiritual and religious seeking and finding that can happen in those cities, we're still in the South. We're still in the Bible Belt, people. But we tend to want to escape the evils of the city, things like crime and the evil of traffic and congestion on our roads and highways in overcrowded neighborhoods. We can't see the beauty of the city for all the problems, and yet we're not willing to engage and seek to be a part of the restoration and renewal of the city. (laughs) I think about Jonah when I think of this view. Remember how Jonah viewed Nineveh? God calls him to go and preach a message of repentance, and he's like, "Mm -mm, I'm going to go that way. And then when everything that can possibly go wrong for Jonah goes wrong, he finally goes and he proclaims the message. And what happens? This great revival breaks out in Nineveh. There's repentance, there's humility. And Jonah, he just pouts. He goes and he sits out outside of the city. (laughs) He sits under the tree and he's just sulking. But remember God's heart for Nineveh in chapter 4? And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Nineveh was this great city. God wasn't concerned with Jonah going to Nineveh and enjoying every single aspect of life there. He didn't care so much if Jonah loved the art museum. He was concerned with a large population of his image bearers repenting and believing in him. That should be our mindset. So number one, we reject the city. Number two, we reflect or mirror the city. Now, at first glance, when you hear that, you think, well, don't we want to reflect or mirror our city like we want to be a diverse city? Yeah, absolutely. We're not talking about the the makeup of our church. We're talking about uh, the DNA of our church. See, when the church mirrors the city or reflects the city, she loses the distinctiveness she has by being different from the city. She becomes just like what she's trying to, to save, but, but instead of showing some signs of distinctiveness and difference, we look just like the world. <laughs> I, remember, uh, I remember Mike sharing a couple of weeks ago during the pre-service meeting uh, before the service um, when Mark was kicking our series off about how he had recently seen someone post something about looking for a church in their area. Mike's going to snicker at this. Brett already did. Um, This person was looking for a church that had, quote, great music, but didn't talk about Jesus too much. (laughs) Friends, that's not a church. That's a concert. You can go to the Ryman and get that. We gather as God's people to worship God because he has saved us and he has called us and we are sent out from this corporate gathering to go tell the people we interact with about the good news, not the good advice, the good news that has impact on every aspect of our lives. We don't come to a concert just to sing. We come to a worship service to proclaim and give thanks. We as the church lose our prophetic voice when we fear making those truth claims because it could lead to punishment, to ridicule or scorn from those who are not yet part of the body of Christ. And I want to be very clear when we think about this. That doesn't mean that the world doesn't have very good things to say about the city, or of the church, excuse me. Very telling things to say. They are right to call us out when we do not live out the gospel. They are right to uh, hold us accountable when we fail to love as Jesus loved. But even in that, we are called to look different. We are called to be distinctive. 
So we reflect the city, uh, we reject the city. Lastly, we romanticize the city. Now, I think this is probably the view that many of us in this room have about Nashville, if we're being honest. There's quite a lot to love about our city. We have incredible arts and entertainment options. You've got sports and recreation opportunities all around you. You don't have to go very far to see something amazing. And quite honestly, businesses and people are moving to Nashville in droves, which some people may love, some people may hate. It's okay. Nashville is this incredibly vibrant city. And in fact, you could be sitting next to a Tennessee Titan one minute at a restaurant downtown, and the very next minute you could be rubbing elbows with a Titan of the music industry. Nashville is that kind of a city. Now, we tend to get excited about it, um, you know, kind of like a middle schooler that goes to Six Flags the first time each summer, or maybe for you native Tennesseans, Dollywood. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, you want to see all the new rides that they put out. You want to experience the standards that you've just grown accustomed to. Get a few rides on those. And then you want to return home at a reasonable hour, not incredibly sunburned because you didn't listen to your parents and put on sunscreen. You want the benefits of the city without the burn that the city provides. But the reality of Nashville and of every single city there is, big or small, is that cities are still places full of spiritual darkness. The idols that impact massive cities like Nashville are in all cities. Things like money, sex, power, they're prevalent everywhere. And in bigger cities, they tend to be more obvious and available for individuals to get swept up in. And if we find our security, our satisfaction and significance in those things and in anything other than Jesus, that's all that's going to happen. We will get swept up in it. So we reject the city, maybe we reflect the city, or we romanticize the city. And, and I'm not saying that everyone does this, but I, I do think we in the church do sometimes do that. So how do we view the city the way God does? What is his blueprint for the city? Well, to be for the city, we need people who are committed cultural contributors. All right, let's go back to Jeremiah 29, okay? Notice what God tells the people through Jeremiah, starting in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Build houses plant gardens, start families. That is not exactly PhD level, but that's what God says helps show the people of your community that his people care about it and are for their communities thriving and flourishing. Now think about that with me. Builders and farmers, all right? I'm the grandson of farmers. My wife and her siblings, they are the grandchildren of farmers. There's a lot there. I'm also someone who in the pandemic, I took up watching this old house because I'm a 76-year-old man in a 36-year-old man's body, at least for a few more months before I become a 77-year-old man in a 37-year-old man's body. But think about it. It takes a lot of time to build a house. You have to have a plan, you have to have materials, and you have to have manpower to build it. There's a lot there. And despite what HGTV may tell you, it does take more than an hour to complete it. But think about all that you don't see each episode. You only get snippets of it. Now, I think we need to have more of a this old house mentality where, you know, where Kevin goes in and he asks Tom and he asks Roger and all those guys like, hey, what are you doing here? What's making this project tick? How can we fix this? How can this be improved? And they slowly, little by little, show you those improvements over a long period of time. 
then finally you see the finished product. You finally see what they've been working for and building for. If you're a builder, you don't take all the time, the energy, and the resources that are necessary to build a house if you've got a renter's mentality. You're going to invest because it's going to be your home where you live with your friends, where your family. That's, that should be our posture. Think about planting gardens. Jeremiah's day, and even today, the world is, is very agrarian, very farming. Um, farming, okay, yeah, I said that. It'll get edited out by Colin, I'm sure. But farming was crucial to one's livelihood. And it's still critical today, but, but except for the pandemic, we never bat an eye at what it means to be a farmer, at what goes into it. There's the cultivating of the soil, the planting, and, and the harvest each year, hoping for something bountiful. And then what do you do? You do it all again the next year. You hope it's as good or as better than it was. And you pray that the crop doesn't take a downturn the next year. Again, you're not doing it to get famous. You're not doing it to show the social media world all the cool things you're doing. Look at my corn stalks. You're not doing that. But you're not going to spend the time to do it if it's not something that's crucial to your life. Well, in the same way, our lives are meant to be spent building, cultivating, farming the areas where God has called us to live, work, learn, and play. I love that Mark used those four images. We need to be willing to do that over the long haul repeatedly. And this means that God's people should be generous. So there's one of our values, generosity. We need to be generous with our time, with our talents, and our treasure. Our generosity matters both inside the walls of the church or inside the walls of the school here. As we serve one another in kids' ministry, the band serves us by leading us in worship, the AV team, setup teams, you name it. But our generosity also matters in our neighborhoods, in our offices, in our classrooms, in our cities. I would ask us, are we seeking opportunities to serve our oikos out of the extravagant grace that we have been shown in Christ? What does that even look like in Nashville? Well, again, I think it starts by thinking about where we live, work, learn, and play. How are you and I strategic about those places? I mean, take work, for example. Do we worship our work? Or do we work as an outpouring of worship to God toward those we serve? The way we answer that tells us a lot about our hearts. So I think about the wonderful people in our church body that have served in healthcare, in education, private business over the last year. They have sought to be the very best employees they can be in very difficult and shifting circumstances day in and day out, trying to serve patients, patrons, students with the same excellence they always have with continually shifting goalposts about what normal may look like and when it would return. When we view our work as an outpouring of worship to God, brothers and sisters, we will seek to work with excellence, with integrity, and love to those in our path. The people that you serve in your job, the people you work alongside in your job, they will see that excellence, they will see the integrity, and they will see something very different than what they see in themselves and in the world around them. So God tells them to be culture makers and build and farm. He also tells them to start families. Families that will seek to love and serve their new home. So if we reject the city, our families will stay home unless we absolutely need to go somewhere or do something that can't be done at home, which we've learned in, in COVID, you know, a lot of things can be done at home. 
We won't know our neighbors. We'll stay heads down at work or school and not learn about the people God has brought into our lives from all over the country and and really all over the world, if we're being honest. This requires us to take ownership. There's another one of our values, of our daily, weekly, and monthly rhythms to engage our oikos with the love of Jesus. It won't happen accidentally, only by intentionality. Remember last week, Mark referred to Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus. Remember Jesus' response when he first met Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I have to stay at your house today. He intentionally sought to spend time with Zacchaeus, probably uncomfortably for him. But that that encounter fundamentally shifted everything about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' home became a hub where people met Jesus, including Zacchaeus, and they were transformed. Our homes, our neighborhood, our community parks, our gathering places um, are the soils where we have the opportunity for intentional gospel advancement with our neighbors and with our family. I don't know if you've read the book, but the gospel comes, the gospel comes with a house key. But Rosario Butterfield talks in that book about a radical, ordi- radically ordinary hospitality that doesn't demonstrate perfection, but rather repentance and reconciliation. She talks about how her neighborhood is filled with people who started out as strangers and then over time became neighbors and are now considered family whenever they're in her home. Strangers to neighbors to family. That's really beautiful. There's nothing magical about it, like she didn't have some big formula, didn't have a blueprint laid out herself. Just intentional connection between her family and those in her oikos. You know, I think about, I think about Stephen Castello, who I mentioned earlier. He was, he was my pastor in Birmingham for several years. He and his wife and their kids are in Boston now. But I can't remember a day when I went to their house and it wasn't full of people, full of neighbors, eating a meal, playing a board game, watching a movie, talking, working on a project together, you name it. They were not wealthy. They were, they were by no means like, you know, seeking to impress people. They just made it a priority to be intentional with each and every person that came into their lives, me included. I think about Buster and his wife, Michelle, and their kids. I don't have the arm definition I have without being able to throw their kids up and down repeatedly. It actually prepped me for my son, Caleb. Um, I'm very thankful for that. But Buster is someone who works with integrity, and when you meet him for the first time, he's just so down home. He's a Mississippi State fan. He's just, you know, he's a down-home dude. But he works and he serves with integrity in every single thing he does. He loves his family with integrity. And it doesn't go unnoticed by the people of, of his church. It doesn't go unnoticed by the people in their neighborhood. They love being around Buster. So we're called to be committed cultural contributors. We're also called to be peace seekers for the city. So look at verse 7 of chapter 29. God tells Jeremiah to tell the people, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That word welfare there, in your translation, it may read peace, but it's actually the Hebrew word shalom. So we see welfare, we see peace. There's a good reason it's translated differently in different translations. Uh, it's actually a word that doesn't have a singular meaning. It's one of those Hebrew words that you can't just really kind of box it up in one thing. Those two words it's 
translated to peace and welfare, actually have unique meanings and ideas in our minds when we hear them. When we think of peace, we typically hear peace as the absence of conflict. We usually associate it with like our nation being at peacetime instead of at war. Welfare can have a very positive or negative connotation depending on which side of the political aisle you fall on. Some people hear the word welfare and it may be seen as nothing more than a government handout while others view it as a safety net to help people live a normal life. But welfare is really about thriving, flourishing, and prosperity of the people in the city. If we take those two words, those two definitions, and combine them together, we get the word shalom. It gives us a more complete framework for understanding that, and it gives us a better picture of what it means to seek the shalom of our city. God has told his people to build homes, build families, and to actually seek the shalom of Babylon. They're captors. Can you imagine that? God telling you, seek the shalom of Babylon. He's literally asking them to help their enemy prosper. But he's also calling them to seek the shalom of Babylon, to pray for Babylon. Why? Because God says as Babylon prospers, his people will also prosper. Did you see what he said there? Seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In the shalom of Babylon, in the shalom of Nashville, you will find your shalom as well. If they are praying to the sovereign God of the universe who ordained this, then trusting him with the shalom of Babylon will mean shalom for them, peace, prosperity, blessing. And they will also be a blessing to the people of Babylon. Their commitment to seeking the shalom of Babylon won't be because they're looking to get out, because remember, they're going to be there for multiple generations. Many people will not leave Babylon alive. Could you trust God to go when you may very well not walk out? But they're looking to dig deep roots in Babylon, in that community, and with those people, to see the thriving, the flourishing, the shalom of the city. God is asking them to seek the justice. There's that third value. But positive justice in their new city. As I mentioned earlier, our society tends to view justice in a very negative way. We want justice for words said and actions committed against us or others we know, and this is right. It's a way to remind us that the world has fallen and things aren't as they're supposed to be. We should seek justice for wrongs committed. But we also think about justice from the standpoint of salvation and eternity, that all who reject Jesus ultimately will justly get what they deserve, eternal punishment in hell. But if we're honest, we never really tend to think about justice in a very positive way. See, if we see people as they really are, fallen image bearers of their creator like us, who have inherent and immeasurable dignity, value, and worth, then we will seek to positively impact their lives, seeking justice on their behalf in good situations and in bad ones. Remember Jesus' words in Mark 10, 45? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. There's intention, there's proactivity there. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now as we start to land the plane this morning, we have to ask what this looks like practically in our spheres of influence. How can you and I live the way Jesus did by engaging those in our lives in a positive manner for the kingdom? Well, just a few practical things. In our homes, seek to invite neighbors and friends to gather for a meal on a regular, maybe weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. 
Set a rhythm for your family, roommates, and whoever, so they will see that this is a priority in your home. You know, we, we bought a house last year in January, and our goal, our hope was like, hey, we want to be hospitable. We want to invite people over. I think we had Amanda Smelter over, and then the world shut down. And then we had Amanda Smelter over again after the world kind of sort of opened back up. But that's our goal. That's our hope. That's our desire. Make it a priority. At work, (laughs) almost none of us have jobs where we're not collaborating with others in some way, even during the pandemic. You have coworkers that work alongside you. You have maybe a manager and, and you supervise, or maybe you have a manager and they supervise you, hopefully. But even during the pandemic, even as we have this remote work, which may be the new normal, be intentional about seeking connections with your coworkers. Invite them to a virtual lunch or coffee or in person if you're in the office. And seek to get to know their story, find their interests, hobbies, etc. Find out what makes them tick, what they're passionate about. And again, like I mentioned about my boy Buster, seek to work with integrity and excellence in all you do. We have this whole thing where we, we view work as this fallen thing. Work was around before the fall. It just got corrupted by the fall. We should be people who work with excellence, who work with integrity and seek honor in all that we do. And ladies, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some encouragement here. I'm not going to call you out because you don't need to be called out on this one, but men, we do. Men, seek to use your garage, your yard, your deck, your patio, whatever it may be, your living room, as sort of a third space where other dudes can gather and hang out and build community. This is something that is often neglected or false to the wife to be the community builder for the family. And here's the thing, like, women, you're great at it. My wife is excellent at it. But it doesn't just fall to her. It should be something that men do as well. We should be actively pursuing this. So as we close, I want to just simply ask you, when you think about Jesus in those words, He did not come to be served. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He was playing with eternity in mind. He was living life with the eternal in perspective. We view things in the here and now solely. What would it look like for us to shift, to have a kingdom, eternal mindset about this? Nashville would be transformed, not just by Fellowship Nashville, but by all of our churches, by our communities, where we seek to see the kingdom enacted. We seek to see the kingdom built here on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. But we can't do it passively. We can't do it accidentally. It has to be with intention, dedication, and with a view of the long haul in mind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, like I mentioned this morning, I'm so inadequate for this task. I'm a kid who grew up a country boy living in the city, spending time on the farm in the summer and loving it. I grew up seeing the big city as that dangerous place where dangerous people live. By your grace, you have opened my eyes that it is full of image bearers. And though I don't live it out perfectly, though we don't live it out perfectly, you have called us to Nashville for however long you would have us here. 
or 10 years, 10 decades, whatever the case may be. However long you would have us here, Father, give us the power, empower us, give us the ability to seek the thriving and flourishing of Nashville. Give us the ability to see the needs around us and to not just sit and say that's someone else's problem. That's someone else's responsibility. But as your church, help us to be a place where people see and encounter the real Jesus who came and sought them, who died for them, and who was raised so that they could be raised to life in Jesus. As we go from here, God, it's Thanksgiving. And in a week such as this, when we have so much to be thankful for, soften our hearts and show us the many, many ways that you have called us to live here. Show us the many, many ways that you have blessed us to live here and to be a blessing to those around us. We cannot do this in our own power. We need you. Again, we thank you for Jesus and what he accomplished for you and for us. And we ask that you give us that same attitude and mindset. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's going to be a little different. You notice I didn't call the band back up. Didn't. We are going to have some discussion questions on the screen for you guys, but today's going to end a little differently. Our benediction this morning is simply me saying thank you. Thank you for being here this morning in person. Thank you for being uh, someone who watches online, staying along, staying caught up with us. Thank you all for being part of the story God is writing for Fellowship Nashville. And thank you for being involved in the life of this city. As we go from here into a week where, as I just prayed, we get to celebrate, let's be proactive in showing gratitude and thanksgiving for those in our lives. Maybe give a neighbor, a friend, family member that you haven't spoken to in a while a quick phone call or a text message just to let them know how you're grateful that God brought them into your life. Maybe schedule some time in the next couple of weeks to grab meal or coffee to catch up and celebrate something. But as you leave here, go in God's grace and live out the gospel in your oikos this week. I love you and I will see you next week. You're dismissed. <laughs>